Welcome back to another episode of How I Position That on the Product Marketing Experts podcast. Week six, here we are, our second to last episode of the positioning mini-series. This week, I had Sam DeBoff, head of creator, brand, and product marketing at Spotify. And I did say Spotify, not Shopify, like Tamira, who was on the show a few weeks ago. Now, for Sam's role, he's focused on creators, artists, bands, podcasters who put their content on Spotify, as opposed to listeners that consume content on Spotify like you and I do. That really got us into a conversation around personas, given that there are so many different types of creators that publish on Spotify. We also talked about the difference between positioning for a B2B brand like Spotify and B2B brands. And he explained his four quadrant framework for new feature or product rollout positioning. Before we get into the interview, I do wanna ask a quick favor of everyone. Like I said before, this is our second to last episode. So before we wrap up the mini series, I'd love to hear what you think of it. Shoot me a note on LinkedIn or Twitter at Daniel J. Murphy. Would love to hear from everyone. Today's episode was produced by Sharebird. Sharebird is the peer mentoring platform for product marketers. It's a place to discover on-demand resources to help you with product marketing. And if you have any feedback on the episodes, please email podcasts at sharebird.com. All right, without further ado, let's go. All right, Sam, welcome to the podcast. Really excited to have you here. Thanks, happy to be here. So let's get started at the top. I think most people probably know what Spotify is, and hopefully a lot of them are actually listening to this podcast on Spotify. I know I made the transition in the last year or so away from Apple Podcasts, which is a terrible experience, but this is not about that. (laughs) This is Spotify, which I love and I've been using for years. Let's start with how do you describe Spotify to someone? Yeah, well, certainly most people know Spotify for our offering to listeners. We have 345 million listeners around the world using Spotify for music and podcasts. But I actually work on uh, a part of our business that's less well-known, which is our offering for artists and music creators. And we now have over a million artists using Spotify for artists each month. And we're working on on products and services for artists and everyone who helps artists produce their music. So that's labels and managers, songwriters, producers, public kind of all the folks that are involved in creating, recording, promoting, distributing the music that people love on Spotify. So I'm focused on on that part of the business, which is really fun because Spotify for listeners has been around for over a decade now. People know it pretty well. A lot of the product marketing challenges in the artist space, a newer part of our business, are pretty exciting to take on. And any product that helps creators is always fun to work on. Yeah. And you know, you're listing all these different creators and I'm thinking, oh man, you must have like a bajillion different personas when you're thinking about positioning. Are personas a thing? Are you thinking about different personas when you're thinking about creators and Spotify? Yeah, definitely. And I used to work at Medium, the publishing platform, where similarly you'll have writers, publication editors, professional writers, amateur writers, and in all kind of creator spaces, the product marketing challenge is always having enough personas that it is uh, meaningful and useful and specific without having so many that you kind of get lost in a sea of them. What is kind of interesting about the music industry is all those folks I mentioned really are organized around the artist on behalf of the artist. So when you think about a full artist team who might be a performer to the band, folks from the label, their manager, a publicist, a promoter, they're all acting on behalf of the artist, one strategy as one team. And so we often can simplify our personas by really just trying to build for the artist and their music and knowing that 
There's lots of people there who help them make the magic happen, but our product positioning and our product marketing can really focus on that as the unit rather than getting too much into all the different roles that a user might have. Yeah, I was talking to a product marketing lead named Christy Roach a couple of weeks ago over at Airtable. And Airtable, kind of similar as she described to me, it can be anything to anyone. So when you think about personas, and she has some really interesting intakes on like bottoms up messaging, right? Where like the user is usually like they have a huge user base, have a huge user acquisition channel, and then kind of infiltrating the organization takes a lot of messaging. And so like, that's where they spend a lot of time for product positioning for like the creators and the units. And as you described, how do you approach product positioning for creators on Spotify? Yeah, I think what is interesting about creators is you are mostly operating as a B2B marketing arm, but creators think and act and are consumers. And so you kind of are at this interesting hybrid of B2C and B2B. Creators have a lot of options, especially now, which is a good thing. So the job of the product marketer becomes, how do you stand out for creators and show them that your platform or your tools or your feature set, whatever industry that may be, are the, the most helpful, most aligned to their career goals, give them access to the biggest audiences. And yeah, so it's kind of always fun with creators is there is a B2B component. You want to get into the details. You want to be specific. You want to make sure they understand their features. They want to understand exactly how something works before they're going to use it. But creators are creative people. And so you've got to be really creative in how you market to them and, and how you inspire them. And often it's about showing them ways other creators might be using the tools and they can learn from each other. So it's a pretty cool hybrid of a B2B environment where you're operating more like a B2C marketer. Yeah, that's interesting. And it made me think, what are the competitive alternatives to, you know, I would imagine like almost all creators, especially musicians and bands, they're going to think Spotify first. I mean, Spotify is the number one place people listen, at least in, in my interpretation, right? Like it is at least one of the top places people listen. So like, what are the competitive alternatives to being on Spotify? Yeah, for us, it's really about Spotify for artists. So we certainly support creators putting their music anywhere they can, anywhere they can reach fans. We've built Spotify for artists to become a fan development platform for artists. So it is going beyond just putting their music on Spotify to a set of tools that allow them to build their fan base and, and take control of their career and, and connect with fans all over the world. So it's features like the ability to pitch new songs to our playlist editors, provide a bunch of information and background so editors mm. can help find the right listeners for them. A new feature we recently launched called Canvas, where you can upload a looping visual to any track on Spotify. So when a listener hears your track for the first time and they unlock their phone because they love the song and they want to know who the artist is, instead of just seeing track artwork, you can see a moving visual that expresses an artist's identity. We have a bunch of music marketing tools as well that give them ways to target certain audiences and, and grow their fan base, grow their followers on Spotify. So when we think about the competitive set for us, it's all the different ways that artists have to promote their music and, and build their fan base. And we're happy we're one of many options they have. Anything that gives artists a chance to connect with fans or really creators in any media type. I think it's a really good thing that there's so many more options out there for creators. So that's kind of how we've been thinking about it. Yeah, it's so interesting to me, like the B2C side of product marketing and launches and positioning. And this is something that I have next to no experience. And you have tons of experience between Pepsi and Starbucks and Twitter and Medium and, and now Spotify. So this is really interesting. When you think about positioning for this segment of creators or artists, and you have a new feature launch like the Canvas, do you have a positioning framework that you're pulling from? And then you're saying, okay, we have this new feature. Here's how it fits into this positioning framework. So here's how we come up with the messaging. Or how do you approach new features when it comes to crafting the messaging and figuring out where to position it? 
Yeah, a framework I've used for a few years for whether it's your full product or an individual feature is gathering and collating insights in four quadrants. Mm -hmm. So focusing on audience insights, brand insights, competitive insights, and product insights. And between those four things that often could be at tension with one another, you usually can find your way to the right territory. So that means audience insights focusing on really specifically who's your target audience and what do you know about them? What are the three or four key things that we know about that audience or we know specifically is going to make this feature appeal to them? On the brand side, you want to make sure you're being true to your overall brand story, your brand vision. You want to make sure you're positioning your products and features in a way that will kind of connect and relate to your user base and tie into that kind of overall marketing narrative. Competitive insights, you want to make sure you're competitively differentiated. You're highlighting the aspects of the features or the product that stand out rather than taking positioning that might be great but if it's, you know, feels the same as a product already in market, you might not stand out. And then product insights, you can't have positioning that your product can't deliver on. And so with those four areas, really focusing on internal and external research on all of them, usually start to weed out a few positioning areas that you thought might make sense. But when you get into the rigor of it, don't quite check all the boxes and throughout the process, kind of narrow into what I found to usually be pretty durable positioning territories. And so when you're composing those four quadrants, I imagine you're doing tons of research. I imagine you're probably talking to customers. How are you validating what you said? This is going to be durable. This is going to work or isn't going to work. Yeah, one of the biggest gut indicators I found for that is, you know, your positioning's working when you can make strategic decisions based on it. And the inverse is one of the biggest risks of positioning, which is you kind of do generic or broad positioning that feels good, but actually doesn't help you make smarter marketing decisions. And so for me, the kind of moment I know positioning's ready to roll out is when there's multiple options in front of you, whether it's creative options for a launch campaign or product options for how a feature could evolve or a UX decision. And there's a few options that all are reasonable. And the positioning can be the filter that helps you make the decision between a few strong options. That's when you know it's actually working. Positioning isn't helpful otherwise. And a lot of product positioning can end up staying too broad, too generic, and allows marketers and other teams to post justify a decision by just fitting it into a a broad positioning framework. So for me, that's always been when I have a sense we've gotten there is when there's some tough decisions with a few options that are strong and your positioning can help you make the right choice. Yeah, I love this. This is like the nitty gritty inside scoop on like the B2C side of positioning. I'm sure we could sit here for three hours and you can pull up some positioning docs and stuff. And I truly do have my notepad front of me and I often do for these conversations because it's fun and there's so many things to learn especially when it's a different journey different experience like on the b2c side versus the b2b side speaking of which you kind of described before of like you're sitting in the intersection between b2b and b2c somewhat with your particular role right now I don't know if you could speak to this because you've worked in a lot of b2c companies but how would you think about the difference between positioning for a b2c brand and positioning for a b2b brand Yeah, in my role at Medium, it was kind of both combined. There's B2B marketing to writers and publishers, and then the B2C component to readers. And so there, I definitely felt the difference. And the biggest difference is really that consideration stage for creators for something B2B is there's a much higher bar to get that adoption. So for consumers, for most features, usually there's kind of a low barrier to entry. You're finding some easy ways in. For Spotify, it might be getting them to listen to a few songs or a playlist that they're excited about. For Medium, it was reading a few stories they might have seen on social. That experience is pretty easy to get them started. In a B2B environment or creator environment, they're making career decisions. There's big trade-offs. There's hours, if not weeks, of investment that might go into a decision like that. So, you know, at Medium, it's 
trying to get someone to spend the time to not just want write one post on Medium, but to join the partner program and write a bunch of posts and try to kind of build their audience on Medium versus other blogging and writing platforms that they could choose. So what that means for your, for marketing is you really want to get into the details of it. it. Tends to be like longer form, go to market assets. You need longer case studies, lots of tutorials. Again, kind of whether it's a creator B2B role or really any B2B role, I think people tend to trust their peers more than any company marketing to them. And so testimonials, case studies, videos that highlight how businesses that they might admire are using the product, those become a lot more important. On the consumer side, it's really hard to compete for attention. And with the kind of smaller barrier to entry, and you're really just looking for that first hook for a consumer, you're going to be doing kind of shorter assets, catchier aspects, assets, thinking about broad distribution first, and you know how do you get someone's attention in five seconds? B2B kind of get the time and space to really try to make your case. Yeah, for sure. That makes total sense. You're also on the B2B side, you have a sales team, you might have more support and more sort of infrastructure behind you. Whereas like, it's really interesting because actually your role is not just product marketing, it's product marketing and brand marketing. So I'm guessing here, but it's coupled together in your role because creative really has to be tip of the spear when it comes to positioning. I imagine like positioning and, and you know, actually let's take a step back from positioning, product marketing as a whole and, and what you're owning and what you're doing has to be coupled really closely with brand. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I think I've always found tech companies, especially brand and product marketing really have to be connected. If you're trying to do really strong brand marketing, you want it to be connected to the product, how people actually experience it. And if you're doing good product marketing, you don't want to just focus on the specs of the feature. You want to inspire people in the context of a cultural moment or something that fits into their lives. And I think back to when I was at Twitter, the brand marketing team would, of course, really want to tell stories about how the product's being used around cultural events. On the product marketing side, we were always saying, you know, what's a really cool way to get people to use XYZ feature, putting in the context of the NBA finals, right? So you converge because I think especially now, strong brand positioning can't be disconnected from a product, just kind of given how consumers engage with brands now. So yeah, there's definitely different tactics, different processes, different strategies you'll use for brand and product marketing, but I've always found they work kind of better together. The closer that the strategies are, the stronger the work from both teams are. Yeah. And then how often are you updating positioning? I mean, you know, we talked a little bit about how you're spending time with new launches like the Canva launch or Canvas launch and being able to do the four quadrants and, and map it out. Is there a level above that, like the positioning statement as a whole for the product or for the segment, for the audience that is constantly getting reworked? Or how often are you revisiting that and thinking about it? You know, I think if you're doing your job right, good positioning should at least last a year. If it's shorter than that, you're not going to have time to actually impact perception of your product based on that positioning. Sometimes positioning doesn't work and then you kind of find out pretty quickly and you might iterate in a month or two and keep waiting till it lands. But for bigger picture positioning statements, I'm always hoping they'll be future-proof for a year. And then in quarterly planning, I think revisiting your product architecture and how your features fit together and proof points within that positioning as new things launch, you kind of want to go back and make sure that your framework is still strong and fits together. That's probably a more, if not a quarterly process, it's a ongoing and evergreen process, but your big picture statement, you should be thinking in a year, at least as your time span. 
You mentioned that sometimes when it doesn't work, what are the most common symptoms of uh, positioning that's not working? Yeah, two things. I mean, qualitatively, again, when it's not helping you make decisions, it's not helpful. And so that's on the more inbound and internal side of, of product marketing. On the outbound side, most of the time, you'll have a really strong growth marketing team to work with. You might put assets in uh, market. You Most companies have great benchmarks established. And when for a feature or for a product or a creative campaign, you pretty quickly can see underperformance and that's when you can't be precious about your positioning, even if you spent months perfecting it. If it doesn't land, it doesn't land. And taking the numbers at face value is usually the right call. Totally. Okay, let's rewind a second to we were talking a little bit about like we barely touched on research and I'd love to hear a little bit more. I feel like specifically at a bigger company, specifically for B2C and a really fast growing company that has tons of data at your fingertips. I imagine research is a huge component of what you do when you're talking about positioning and making updates and where we play and, and everything. How do you approach research? What does research look like when you say, hey, we're going to make some updates to our positioning? Okay, let's go do the work to figure that out. What does that work look like? Yeah, it's been unique for me because the last three companies I've worked at are all platforms. And so we get to hear from our users all the time, which is really helpful. You know, on Twitter, one of the most popular topics to talk about is Twitter. At Medium, one of the most popular topics to talk about is Medium. And, you know, there's hundreds of thousands, millions of podcasts on Spotify and a lot of social conversation about the music industry and a bunch of podcasts about music too. So one of the things I've always loved is you get that real-time feedback loop. So, you know, at all three of those companies, you're investing a lot in really robust social listening, community teams, formal processes where you can quickly iterate from your hearing feedback on your platform. You're able to ingest that, prioritize it, triage it, and hopefully make actionable changes in the product or in the way you're explaining it pretty quickly. So that's always been, uh, I don't know what I'll do when I go back to a company where you don't get to hear from your users <laughs> like that. I find it really meaningful. In addition to that, certainly a, a lot of the kind of more nuanced and creative insights that you need for positioning, I find come from more one-on-one -on -one or small focus group sessions based on if it's about at the product level or the brand level, you might show them a few landing pages and have them talk through their reactions or have them walk through the UX of a feature. Even if it's a marketing interview, not UX research, you kind of have them talk through their experience and the more creative side of research is distilling those kind of nuggets into bigger ideas. So I'd say, yeah, for me, it's always been that combo of a lot of social listening with a good process around the feedback loop, a lot of more one-to-one -one user research. And then we're certainly doing a lot of quantitative research too. You know, quarterly sentiment surveys, in-product NPS surveys, the more kind of actionable data, the better for sure. I love the concept of social listening, and I might sound like an idiot for saying that because I've never heard that used as a term, but it's probably something you've been using for years at your companies. But it's something that I've talked about on the B2B side. We have tools like Gong, which I talk about all the time because it records all of your sales conversations and customer conversations. It transcribes it. I can go in, I can find how many times a feature was mentioned or a competitor was mentioned, and that is social listening, right? Like that's kind of similar. It's not, it's not the same where it's like not on a platform. It's, these are, you know, one-on-one -on -one recorded conversations that obviously we have permission to record, but it's our own database, right? It's like our email database. Whereas like social listening is kind of similar to me. I'm at least going to probably steal that term and, and use it a little bit because I think that's a good label for what you're doing. You're just trying to pay attention to what's going on in the market, particularly one layer deeper is what your audience is saying about your product and every single product marketer out there. They have that community. They have that audience. They can find ways to listen to them. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's often certainly in the creator space, but at most tech companies, your users often understand your product better than you do. And it's always surprising to see that. So approaching it, you know, at Medium, anytime we publish on our official Medium publication, an update, a new feature, one of the best aspects of Medium is you get responses right there that aren't spammy comments like you might get on some yep. websites, but thoughtful prose in paragraphs from writers that are using the product each and every day and some of the biggest power readers. And so approaching it with the mindset of listening always works well. You always learn something new from it, make your next launch and your next feature and your next strategy that much better. And yeah, I didn't realize it was a unique term, but I just might not have heard it oh, no, recently. I'm, and, I'm sure it but is. I love it. I think it's great. I mean, it's one of the things I'm writing down and definitely going to use to describe that process. Think- it's so important to product marketing. You could listen to your product managers or, you know, to your blue in the face, but you know what? Ultimately, it doesn't matter what they think, what they say. It really matters what your customer or user is saying. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm realizing I've worked at social media companies for too long, maybe. <laughs> no, I think it's great. The other thing you mentioned was one-on-one conversations with users. How do you source those? Is it you're just reaching out to artists? You have like a database of people? I'm just really interested in like the logistics of that. Like how does a company like Spotify find those people to have those conversations to get that kind of feedback? Yeah, we have a great user research team that we partner with for all that. And they do a lot of kind of management of research groups keep long-term relationships with users. Also, Mm -hmm. they'll do a lot of outreach and make sure that we're getting a representative sample and we'll brief them in for whatever the goals of our research are. And, you know, at at all the companies I've been at recently, there's been a great user research team that takes that brief and figures out exactly what types of people we should be talking to and helps construct and conduct the, the interviews for us. And so, yeah, that's definitely one of my favorite teams to partner with. I love that. I totally wish this has just become me being envious of you and and hearing about your setup. I would love to have a user research team. That sounds amazing to have them at your fingertips. Do you do stuff like focus groups? Is that still a thing that happens? Yeah, we did that a lot at Medium, less so now. I find it's really useful for more creative research that you're doing because you'll get people talking about your creative to each other and you kind mm-hmm. of understand how they're going to engage over it or what kind of conversations it inspires and they'll feed off each other in a different way. And so especially when we're talking to writers who are used to spending time writing their thoughts long form, focus groups can help bring people out of their shell too and you get some of that comfort of a social environment, especially for decisions around creative where you're wanting to understand what type of conversation you're invoking. Small focus groups, I found definitely can be really helpful. All right. Second to last question I have, we were talking about this before, but I didn't ask it. And I am curious because you provided some really good feedback basically on how you look for signals that positioning has failed or new new messaging rollout has failed. Can you think of an example of launching a new feature, going through your methodology, your framework and realizing, shoot, we didn't get this right. We didn't position this right. Have you had that happen? Yeah, definitely. I think I've worked on a lot of features that are expression tools for creators on Twitter, Medium, and Spotify. And often you might think creators are going to use it a certain way. And then you quickly find out there's an awesome way better way that they're going to leverage it. So it happens all the time for sure. I can't think of like a great example off the top of my head, but you know, one that comes to mind is, you know, at Twitter working on the launch of the GIF button. Like, you know, within a tweet, you can pick GIF and, you know, easily search for it and choose. I used to be a power user of that feature, I'll I'll admit. I don't do it as much anymore. GIFs are not as in style as as much as they once were. It's like a certain certain personality type on Twitter that uses GIFs regularly, but I definitely use that way back when. It's cool that you were behind the scenes on that. They, uh, they go in and out of style for sure. 
But yeah, I definitely remember with that one, we had spent a lot of time trying to, you know, we thought people would use them in DMs a lot more in a conversational way, or you might use them to kind of find a GIF of the topic you're talking about. Like if you're tweeting about a movie, maybe you'd search that movie and kind of like use it instead of an image. And then it took off right away and totally was about the emotion of it, was about a way to make kind of like a twist or some humor on your tweet to really kind of make the tweet more fun, make the creative more fun. Instantly, we saw people kind of replying back and forth with GIFs piling on one mm -hmm. another. And so, you know, that's a launch that went great. And definitely creators made it something that we hadn't envisioned as a marketing team, which is cool to see. Yeah, I've seen them use a lot as like replies. They're really popular as someone replies to something and it's just like a fun, cheeky way to respond and come up with like, especially when you get like really random gifts that like you maybe don't know the TV show or you don't know the movie it's from, but it just fits the response perfectly. Like, I don't know if we've used the search on Twitter, like gift search as much, but I've used it on like Giphy and other places and like finding, like I always like find one I have to scroll down a bunch to like find one that no one else is using. If you yeah. use the same ones, then it kind of feels stale, right? So right. that feeling when you find the right one and it's perfect. Yes, uh, exactly. There's, there's gotta be a gift to describe that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. My, so my last question for you, what's one book that you would recommend to a product marketer that's gonna own positioning for their company? One of my favorite books that I've reread a few times is called Hitmakers by Derek Thompson, who's a Atlantic writer. And it isn't specific to marketing or product marketing at all. It's about the science of consumer behavior and how things become popular. And it kind of covers the, like with deep analysis of trends, how things take off in media and food and culture and language. And there's a bunch of really good nuggets in it. And yeah, I definitely recommend that one. Awesome. I'm going to check that out. That sounds like a great one. Even if you don't work for a platform company, I think it's probably, especially trends. I mean, that's just fascinating as it is. I think a lot of product marketers listening will want to check that out. So hit makers, check that out. I'm sure you can probably find it on Amazon. I'm going to go look it up and order it after this interview. Or bookshop.org. Or bookshop.org. Okay, cool. Sam, thank you so much for, for taking the time to chat. This was really interesting. Really cool to see behind the scenes on the, the B2C side and some of these bigger platform companies, how you do it. So thank you so much for taking the time. Of course, this is really fun. Thanks. All right. Hope you enjoyed that episode with Sam from Spotify. Next week, we'll be back for the final episode. So make sure you subscribe. My guest next week is a secret, but I promise you're going to want to tune in and listen to this conversation. Also, if you're loving the podcast, we'd love for you to write us a review. Reviews help us get the podcast in front of more marketers. So please help us out. It means a lot to us. Special thanks to Sherbert for producing this episode. All right, everybody. See you next week. But it's all right.